there are no technical people in California. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash ifreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 110 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. Mike Ash. Hi from Fairfax, Virginia. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, real quick, I know this isn't a Ruby show, but if you're interested in Ruby and you want to go to an online conference that I'm putting on, go to rubyremoteconf.com. It's going to be at the end of June, so go check it out. It'll be awesome. Uh, we have two special guests this week. We have Dylan Bruznak. Oh, I'm supposed to say hi now. Hi. Yeah. And Dustin Bruznak. Hello from Minnesota. Uh, do you gentlemen want to introduce yourselves really quickly? Yeah, I'll start. Uh, I'm Dustin Bruznak. I'm from Icon Factory North. We are the development branch for Icon Factory, and we build apps for clients primarily, although we have some of our own in-house apps. Um, we do some work for Icon Factory apps like uh, Twitterific. Um, one of the main things that we've done recently that you may have used is the the watch app for that. Oh, cool. Yeah, I like the Twitterific watch app. And for my part, I, uh, I'm the do-everything-else-that-needs-to-be-done technically. I, do, I mostly work for uh, API design, cloud services, working on the server side of the app uh, equation. I also wrote AppViz and uh, Mac apps and iPhone apps as well. But lately, I've spent more time on the in-between mapping layers and the back end than the, the front end. Also at Icon Factory North, obviously. So Icon Factory has been around for a while. What is Icon Factory North? So I think Icon Factory has been around for almost 20 years now. So Icon Factory North really was born out of AppViz. When we were doing AppViz 3, we decided that one of the main things we wanted to do with AppViz is get a designer. We're all, the three of us, it's me, uh, Dylan, and uh, Troy Gall, who you may have heard of as the lead on Lightroom. He also has his own app development shop called Infinite Apps. We're all working on AppViz 3, and we're all from Adobe, and we're used to working with really talented designers because if there's one thing that Adobe has, regardless of how many Photoshop palettes there are, I mean, they have some very top-notch, opinionated designers. And we had this great experience working with them. And when we all left and worked on AppViz, one of the things we were missing was that designer. So we tried to do our own UI. And I'm sure you've all 
lots of you have seen the result of that and also just in general the result of what happens when developers try to do their own UI. It was something that was functional, that looked okay, but we weren't proud of it like we've been proud of Lightroom. So what we did is we went to Icon Factory and we said, okay, we need a design partner because at the time AppVis wasn't making enough money to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for design. But we wanted something that looked really good. So we approached Icon Factory with a partnership proposal. We said, look, we know you guys are sort of the top dog for design or one of the top dogs for design in the iOS and the Mac space. You've been around forever. Can we work something out? And it dovetailed nicely because Craig Hockenberry was a large part of our success with AppVis. He was one of our early beta testers. He was the first person to tweet about it. Um, his endorsement of us basically is what really launched the AppVis business. So through Craig, we had heard that simultaneously to us needing this design, Icon Factory was looking at doing something called Bean Counter, which was an internal app for doing financial reconciliation, which was one of the major features that we wanted to do in AppVis 3. Uh, so we approached them and said, hey, can we partner on this instead of competing? And you know, we'll do the financial stuff that you guys really want for yourself, and, and you guys can do the design and, and build the app. And that's kind of how AppVis 3 was born. And we launched AppVis 3, and the problem with AppVis in general was that it was always a small market. It was Mac users who didn't want to have their data stored in the cloud using a Mac product to track their financials, and primarily iOS developers. And we had, we sort of underestimated the position of our market. Primarily, we underestimated how badly people wanted to keep things on their desktop and from the cloud. Uh, and that was our kind of fundamental mistake. We needed to move to a recurring revenue model because the market was so small. So we moved to the cloud with a recurring revenue model, and it did not go awesome. So from that, it did okay, but it wasn't what we wanted it to be, and it was obvious that, that it wasn't going to become So that's kind of the meandering way that we get to. Right. So this is, <laughs> this is all – it's a journey, right? Um, I'm trying to explain the journey. So anyway, so – we were deciding what to do next, and one of the things that we looked at is we looked at the mobile space, and we said, okay, there's a lot of mobile developers out there who are good, who need help building their apps or bringing their apps to market. And there's a lot of people out there who have really great ideas who don't have the mobile expertise and the, and the Objective-C expertise that we have. So can we package that and sell it? And one of the things we were looking at is we're looking around, and we're like, okay, these guys also need designers. So we went to Icon Factory, and we said, hey, guys, do you ever – get people asking you to do development work? And their answer was, yeah. And we're like, so what do you do? And they're like, oh, we usually say we don't do that. <laughs> and so we said, hey, how about you say, start saying yes? And we'll build a development consultancy here that partners with you. And that's how North was born. And we've been doing that for about a year and a quarter, something along that, that lines. And it's just been skyrocketing. It's been pretty uh, crazy. It's been pretty crazy. So it turns out there was a lot of demand for people that can merge sort of the skill set of design with development. And that's kind of how North was born. And now we're five people here in Minnesota. And we primarily work with four designers, one in Sweden and three in North Carolina. And then a person in Georgia, a person in Iowa. They're all over the place. Icon Factor is a pretty distributed group. Are those designers you work with people who are part of Icon Factory or were already part of Icon Factory, or are they just working with you? Because so, Icon Factory is traditionally design and then their own, their own, in, yeah. you know, their own apps. So it's all Icon Factory. Uh, so one of the designers we work with, the two major designers we work with are Dave Rosgala and Ged Mayhew, who was one of the main founders of Icon Factory. But we do do work with Anthony Pirano and and pretty much their whole and, stable of designers. 
most of the development's still done for their apps, like Twitterific, is still done by people on their side of the boat, Sean, and and we'll help if they ask for help. But they've got some a couple sharp, te- you know, Sean and Craig are pretty sharp, technically very smart. So they uh, don't forget Tyler, awesome. Tyler, Anderson and Tyler is also very good. Um, so, but yeah, we wanted to come on and yeah. not take, you know, they they like, but they weren't interested in working on outside apps. That's why it didn't. You know, someone would come to them with an idea and be like. You know, I need this awesome icon. You guys did an awesome UI, and now I have this awesome UI in Photoshop. It's all broken up in the layers I need. How do I turn that into an app? I don't really know what I'm doing. They'd have to pay someone else, and they'd have to go find people, and then they'd have to take their chances on whether they were good or not. So now we can provide that entire experience. We can say, hey, we got this design. We can work iteratively with the developers, I mean the designers and the developers working together um, to get it done and then working with the customer. So that works a lot better. I mean, it depends on the size of the app, what the target is, whether it's worth hiring a premium design firm. Dustin will yell at me for saying that later. <laughs> so one thing that I'm wondering, though, is that it seems like a lot of folks out there when they're building an app, especially if it's munging or organizing data in any way, I mean, they just use the default look and feel from Apple. So how much design really goes into it other than the the app icon? Well, if you're going to do a real app, I mean, if you're if you're doing something for a business, yeah, a lot of those things are, I guess, bastardized hell piles of hell code uh, and UI that uses Apple's like bare minimum, mi- minimum viable product. And that's fine because you're trying to get a, a basic business task done for your enterprise. But if you're trying to do something that sells to consumers and the consumers want to keep installed on their phone, it either better be completely indispensable or it better look good and more importantly, work well enough that it doesn't frustrate them constantly. I mean, we all have a bunch of apps on our phone that we don't use. And there's a reason we don't use them. Most Half the time it's because they just weren't that useful. But the other half the time it's that the user experience was frustrating. And a big part of design isn't just making it look pretty, it's making it work well. And that's kind of where we bring the workflow, organizing the information, making sure it's presented to the user in a way that makes sense because a lot of users for most of these apps, I mean, they're not us. They're not the technical guys who are going to dig or are going to spend, you know, an hour working on figuring out how to get the data. You know, it's not important to them. They're just trying to get their problem solved in their domain. They want they want the app to say, hey, this is what I do for you. Hit this button, get it done, you know, and then they want to return to their daily life, you know. So right. that was a great answer, I think, to the question. I think the other answer is, you know, look at the apps you use on your phone on a day-to-day basis and how many of them are default UI table views and UI navigation views without customization, without animation. I mean, there's a few, but the ones that we really fall in love with, I can say Twitterific, it seems self-serving, but like before I was at Icon Factory, I just loved Twitterific. And the reason for that is because I have this emotional response of the way the UI is built, particularly the new UI. And that kind of emotional response is not delivered by a simple table view app. And if you want your customers to really engage, and more importantly for your business, re-engage with your product, you need to create this emotional experience for them when they're using it. And the best way to do that is delightful animations and design. And without that kind of fundamental interaction, your app is going to fall by the wayside as soon as someone else produces something that has a different feature that someone wants. And that's, I mean, that sounds like marketing speak, but it's also very, very true in that if you look at the fall-off rates, the graphs for how often people return to your app like a month later, you can see the punishing realities of the App Store. And you can see that you need to scrabble for every little thing that you can. And the way your app looks, that's, I mean, that's the primary experience that the user is going to have. It's not the data that's in it. If they can't get to what they're looking for in just a couple of taps, they're going to delete your app. 
they're going to uninstall it. Now, I'm not saying that that is necessarily true of all apps and for all people. Different levels of design, obviously, you need to take your market into account. You need to know who your users are going to be and what they need. But if you're making like a game or, you know, even like a social app or whatever, you want an experience that's good end-to-end. And if you can do that design yourself, that's great. But so many people can't. So given a specific design then as a developer, how do you begin to approach that? That's something. So first of all, it depends on the designer, right? So all designers work differently, and <laughs> designers are, if any of you have had the, the pleasure of working with designers, they're unique people. Uh, individuals, just like developers, can be unique individuals. And so it starts with a, a communication with the designer, because the first thing you'll notice when you start dealing with a designer, even a really great designer, is that they don't think of all the fault scenarios that you do as a developer. So our initial process is we meet with the customer, we wireframe everything, out. So we know kind of what the flow is going to be. We decide basically, are we using UI navigation or where are we using the table views? Uh, you know, what's going to be modal versus non-modal. We hand that off to the designer and they do some initial sort of sketches and renders. Uh, and they come back to us and we look at them and we say, all right, this thing is perfectly positioned if the text is 30 characters, but what happens if the text is 50 characters? I'm sure we've all encountered that kind of scenario, right, where something is looks beautiful on the screen, but then you actually start pumping real data into it and you realize, oh, this totally isn't going to work because it's it doesn't take into account uh, different layouts. It doesn't take into account localization sizes. It doesn't take into account all these various things that feed into making a final app. Uh, and so because we've worked with the designers for so long, we can go back and say, these are the things we you know, need from a design perspective to change. Uh, and that's usually a pretty minim- minimal list because most of the time we can take their sort of intention around their design and adapt it to the actual implementation. So then we break it down into sprints. We practice Agile, but it came from Scrum. It's not Scrum anymore. And as black we, as the word as that is it these days. Yeah, <laughs> we, we we start implementing it's the pseudo Agile. We're totally Agile. Okay, we're not slot like in our development. Yes. We, provo- we move quick, like cares or whatever. But anyway, so then it's a big feedback loop. Once you do the first design, you get it out on test flight. It used to be hockey app, and you get it in front of the customer, you get it in front of the designer, and you start iterating. And the real key is when you look at a design, making it pixel perfect is not the ultimate goal. It's getting the intentions of the designer conveyed using the technology, and in that space. That's where like Troy's expertise of building UIs for millions and millions of people comes in because he's essentially channeling the designer and making the technologies work for the design. So there's a set of – it's a nice sort of responsive feedback loop, but you have then, to go back. Pulling out Xscope, another Icon Factory product and making – which I have to mention, but it's awesome. You should use it if you're not. It's great. Uh, I'm using it to like analyze the terrible hip chat logo right now. But you know, getting that out and making sure it's going to work on all the different phone sizes and all I mean, even on the iPhone space, it's starting to expand. You want to make sure it works on Retina screens. If it's, you know, something that's a Mac, you got to make sure it works on the 5K and, you know, at all the different resolutions and all that. And that's, you know, that's a lot of work. <laughs> so I think there might have been an answer to your question in there. Yeah, I, I think there was. I mean, we, there, we there's tend a lot. to wander. There's a lot there, but I think, you know, ultimately, yeah, I mean, it's communication and, and understanding what the purpose of the app is and then understanding how to work with the person that's doing the design. 
Well, and it's even, I mean, to use like a specific example, oftentimes a designer will break something out into sections on the app and a person who hasn't done a lot of UI development will take out a, a measuring tool and say, okay, this label is 30 pixels from the left of the screen and it's, or 30 points now, or, or and 100 points from the bottom of the screen. And then they'll go and implement it and they'll measure it and then they'll spend forever getting the two points that it's off because for whatever reason there's a margin that was introduced that no one expected. Whereas if you have some experience at this, you'll look at it and say, the designer intended for this to be a third of the way up from the screen with default padding. Oh, you got it. You, you, at this point, you have to talk about the layers problem that you had with AppViz. I mean, remember that? Some oh man, no, no, I don't even want to get into that. That's it's speaking of hell code. <laughs> I had I had a bug and and uh, where the CA layers on the Mac wouldn't even draw. Like you had two layer back views, and one layer back view existing would make the preview the other layer back view not draw at all. But if you went into it with Pixie or Xscope, it would show that it thought it had drawn. So like the zoomed in view would show what you expected to be there, but the actual screen was not showing that. It was amazing. And so I wrote a letter to a friend at Apple, and he sort of bumped it up the hierarchy. And, and the response I got back was, CA layers are shit. Don't use them yet. You know, this was back in, uh, was it 10.5 or 10.6? Um, it's just like, don't use them with collection views. I don't, don't think that, with, he's you know. paraphrasing the actual. <laughs> I, I'm, para- I'm paraphrasing. There was more couching terms. But but the, the people on the, uh, the in charge of that code at Apple were like, don't, you shouldn't be trying to do this yet. Yeah, I really hate it when that happens. They put out something, talk it up, you go use it. Nope, not ready yet. Hmm. Well, I mean, so many of the things, too, are things that work awesome on the iPhone, right? And then you go to use them in some of your Mac development, you find the analog, like CA layers, and you go to use it. And it's not that it doesn't work for basic things. It's when you get to the advanced stuff, the nitty-gritty of implementation. It's just like, nope, this is just not going to work, and there's really no explanation for what the hell's going on. (laughs) And you're just lost in this wilderness with a little knife trying to hack your way out. (laughs) Yeah, in this case, it was because the two CA layers weren't anchored in the same parent super view. Well, they were, but the super view wasn't layer backed itself or something along those lines and they were interfering with each other in the draw in the draw that's basically what i figured out and so i was able to fix it by crawling up the stack and making sure everything in between was also layer backed <laughs> and that magically fixed it and didn't make me feel real real awesome about the fix but you know how many times have you band-aided something and gone ah, it looks like it works okay we're shipping it you know that's that's part of the fun of being an indie We've minimized perform with, you know, perform after delay use in our code by (laughs) 99.99%. Yeah. So with AppViz, you said that it it kind of didn't work out. I'm curious, what lessons did you learn from that? Oh, just a ton of lessons. That is an entire podcast in and of itself. So to be clear, if anyone doesn't know what AppViz is, it was an analytics tool for App Store developers like an App Annie and App Figures. App Figures is the one that we encourage people to use because they actually take your data seriously. Kind of an, uh, you know, iTunes Connect now provides a bunch of graphs and stuff. When we started, they didn't do that. So I guess one of the big lessons is never actually integrate with a website that doesn't have an API if you don't want to spend a lot of 2 a.m. mornings fixing things for your customers. <laughs> That's one that I pulled. And that we did 50-some releases every single year for AppViz. So, oh, yeah. wow. So, wow. Yeah, AppViz, basically, since we were scraping iTunes Connect, we were always kind of under Apple's shadow, and that wasn't a comfortable place to be. They weren't malevolent. It's like living on the back of any other giant. Sometimes it goes to sleep and you get crushed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) They were indifferent, and 
when Dylan started the company, he was spending so much of his time doing maintenance releases due to iTunes Connect changes. And also just, you know, it's not just iTunes and Connect the- changing, but the data feeds for, I don't, you guys have seen the, you've probably all looked at the CSV or at least are aware of the CSV from iTunes Connect. Occasionally it's just wrong and then they fix it the next day and people don't notice because they don't have an automated tool to, pull stuff down but we found people we when we started pulling these things in daily and merging them into the database dylan found that apple was making a decent number of mistakes there were bugs in the data and we would have to go and find out is this a bug in the data is this a bug in our code is this a bug in the graph library translation in 150 countries Anyone? Right. Anyone where where code? is the book and so a typical day for dylan was booting up support digging through the five or six things we knew how to answer, getting to support question number seven, and then eight hours later he has an answer that is effectively, oh, Apple just got the report wrong. It'll be or fixed tomorrow. something odd happened that was specific <laughs> to your choice to sell in Kazakhstan. And not even joking. I mean, that's a real bug. There was something to do with, or maybe it was Russian currency translation that day. I don't know. But I'd spend four hours finding a problem for one customer. And that does not scale. You cannot do that. I mean, people loved that level of support, and that's why I love providing it. You're dealing with developers, and when you engage with them, it's it's an awesome experience for the most part. It's way different than dealing with the rest of the market on the App Store where you just see terrible reviews. Someone might get angry one day and be frustrated with your tool, but they're just expressing passion about it, right? If they're willing to have a conversation with you about it, you can learn a lot from developers. They'll pull out their own tools and find the stack trace and tell you what the hell's going on. It was awesome. Make mock-ups for you. Make mock-ups for you how they thought it should work, right? Yeah, I mean, on the one sense, it's like you want to decide the things, but that feedback is invaluable. But the app is, you know, at the time, it always ran between 30 and 100 support emails a day. And some of those support emails, you know, some days we would get 10, 20 support emails that would take four hours each to validate. So when, we to released app is two, <laughs> when we released App is 2, it took us three weeks to just label all the email that we got from that release. We had to hire the two of us. Just and, to do and, and, and so one of the, th- one of the major it. takeaways is when you're thinking about your business – and you're going into it, I would highly recommend you think about a way to minimize the support burden because especially as an indie, support can kill you. It can destroy your ability to function and not just from a volume perspective but also from an emotional perspective. So it's really important that you have an insulation layer there because between the two of them, for AppViz, we probably spent a year and a half doing just straight support off AppViz 2 without getting any new features written, without thinking about our market, without doing anything. Uh, yeah, we you're just given this tendency the, to solve the, the problem in front of you because you feel a customer's pain very acutely and you know that it's a bug, but you're not solving the problems that all of your customers are having and ultimately that will kill your product. You know, So you have to step back and see a higher level view and that's something that I just did not realize at the, at the time. I was just, I felt so inundated with it that I, I felt like I couldn't step back and do that higher level thinking, you know, or figure out, I mean, we did eventually figure out the basics for extracting the real reason to move to servers was not you know, so we could charge a monthly revenue stream. It was so that I could do the changes in one place and not have to release a new release and deal with customers across 20 different releases of the app complaining about bugs that may or may not exist in various versions. So to fix when that problem... Fit, when you're doing basically a version a week <laughs> or every two weeks, you know, the first thing you want to know from a customer is, well, how old is the version you have? You run update, you know? It's terrible. It's And a lot of the customers aren't technical that you would think. They're business managers. They don't 
even necessarily know how to check for that kind of thing. So they don't understand. They don't read the release notes. They don't understand what any of that stuff's about. They just want to see their one graph so they can produce their report for their vice president or whatever. So, you know, I get stuck in this position. It's like, so anyway. uh, was it, do you, are you guys familiar with Matt Rongi or Matt Ronge? I, I can't remember his name. He did Astro pad i think is the name of the app i think we're, um, we're going to have him on an episode yeah up, he's so. a g- good guy he's he's local here sort of local here in minnesota i believe he just did a blog post about how a huge chunk of running an indie business is managing your emotions effectively staying productive keeping yourself energized and engaged with all the incoming onslaught of all the stuff that you don't really get into this business to do, which ends up being 95% of what you do in this business, right? Everyone has this dream when they leave Big Co that they're going to create this awesome rock star product, that they're going to function well while they're building it with no feedback from anyone else, that it's going to come out and that it's going to make them tons of money and they're going to spend the rest of their life on their yacht. And I think that's it's a great dream to have, but it's nothing like the reality of running a business, which is that it's work. And it's, you know, you hear this over and over again, but you really don't feel it till you've done it yourself. It's not just work. It's harder work than you're doing for Big Co. It's more grueling. It's more demanding. It's more rewarding when you're done with it sometimes but emotionally it's going to be far more draining than just doing cobalt <laughs> you know go back do cobalt if, if you don't you're trading have, one I, boss for however many customers you have for that's 10, really what bosses. you're doing um, yeah, we talk a lot about a lot of this stuff on the freelancer show so yeah i yeah. should listen so to if, that. if um, you're not if you're not the kind of guy that would like saddle up a camel or whatever you do with camels and like go across the Sahara with no water, you're not going to be the kind of guy that can survive the kind of environment that you need to be in in an indie because it's hard. I mean, even if you're successful, and most people are not, even if you're successful, you can go a month without fresh water, right? You, without feed, positive feedback. You could go six months thinking that your app is either going to be completely successful or totally fail and you're you're 50-50, you know, and you got to wake up every day, sit down in front of the keyboard and write, you know, a few hundred lines to a thousand lines of code every single yeah, day. Yeah, if you can get a partner whose whole job it is to like just be the armor between you and just give you the the feedback, you know, to distill the feedback or you know, an employee that can just read stuff and tell you, "Hey, this is the important bugs and whatever, and pull out the vitriol, particularly in the app store, still with the reviews. I can't believe that's still a problem, but it is. It's like, just don't read your reviews. That's the solution that I've seen a lot of people have, and that's terrible because there's a lot of good stuff in there, and you need to know what your customers are saying. But a lot of those people on their app store, they're not even your customers, not really. Yeah, at one point, <laughs> we discussed a uh, feature in AppVis, and we thought it might be too on the nose that, to uh, have a way to submit a review to an anonymous service that would anonymize the review, take the user's name out of it, and just display it for everyone to see. Sort of like a text from App Store review instead of like a text from Xcode. Because some of these things are so terrible and either so mean and stupid or just so straight out weird that they're worth publishing in their own right. You know, there's got to be a Tumblr or something somewhere with this stuff on it, right? Because I think everyone's had that experience. You release an app and you, you get this review that's like, the features there, you know, like uh, I saw when I was I was a judge on Ray Wenderlich's um, top iOS games contest, and one of the quote games was a like a teach you how to make balloon animals app, and it wasn't a game; it was a it was an app that teaches you how to make balloon apple animals, right? And that one of the reviews was, "This is the dumbest game. I can't figure out how to play it." Blah blah blah. And it's like, 
two seconds that the title of the app is like, blah, how to make balloon animals. You know, there's nothing in this that says that it's a game. Um, and I'm looking through the App Store reviews, and some there's more than one that's like, this this game stinks. And that, I think, is the fault of marketing. To be clear, if you wanted to make balloon animals, the app was very good at teaching you how to do that. I mean, right, that was exactly. what the app was about. <laughs> so I'm thinking the guy who wrote that app is looking at the reviews going, what? You know? Worst app Probably ever. holding his head, looking at his sales numbers and crying, you know? <laughs> yeah. Are there yep. critical things that you should be doing to position your app properly? That's the other thing that you know, I learned is that, and something we're, we're taking much more seriously with Icon Factory this time around, and that is that you either really need to have a person that does marketing and management of your company full-time, or you need to make a strong, concerted team effort that makes it 50% or more of your business. You could write the best app on the planet, and if no one finds it, it, it you are going to fail. And even if people do find it, your chances of success are still very limited, even if it's really, really good. You know, one of the tragedies of the App Store is that I think it's made very visible how terrible that arc can be for people and what the percentages really are in success. It'd be interesting to go and look in the 90s at the web businesses and what the percentages of failure were there and correlate them. It was Is it higher? Is it actually higher? Or is it just right, that we have more visibility in general on Windows or anywhere? Because at the ni- interesting thing about the App Store is just now with all the rage about analytics and stuff, and we can talk about privacy some other time, but now we know what the adoption rates are, what the return rates are, how people are using the apps. I think this historically has been data that, we, that people, app developers, didn't have in the 80s and the 90s. And even on websites, it really only started, you know, 10 years ago to start to get huge outside of big companies to know what your customers are doing and whether they're returning or not. So now we can say, you know, there's a 2% return rate after a month or however low that shitty number is it's terrible but you know that doesn't mean that that's just the app store that could just be the success rate for independent software development for all we know right and if that's the case you know i mean those are things people need to know about before they start making bets on this industry (laughs) yeah so the one thing that you can say is that if you launch without marketing you're pretty much guaranteed to fail (laughs) if you launch with marketing and business, you're much, much more likely to succeed. And marketing is very, very tough, especially for us developers who aren't really that savvy. I think a lot of developers, and I certainly thought marketing was evil when I left Adobe. You know, I, I have this sort of reaction to marketing people and salespeople that is, you know, I think not giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's, it's, I sort of tend to look at them and say, you know, these are people who aren't developers, but they're building something. I think, and that's an important thing to understand is they're building businesses they're not building apps uh, but they're a lot of these people are just as dedicated to that as, as we are for building code and it's really important that you find a partner that can do that for you if you're not willing to do it yourself if you're out there and you're writing code and you don't have someone to do the marketing and you don't have a marketing plan stop writing code spend two weeks figuring out what your strategy is because you will fail if you do not do that. I mean, it's pretty much guaranteed. You're betting on the lottery otherwise, right? And if you look at people like Michael Simmons, right, at Fantastic Flexibits. Flexibits. This is a guy who is incredibly good at making the connections and remembering the connections he needs to make his app launches successful. And every app launch he's done, I'm pretty sure, has made money, or at least broken even. And there's a reason for that, and that's because he focuses on the business side while Kent does a lot of the hardcore coding, and they've got that sort of virtuous partnership. And I think that in order to be successful in the store, you you need to think about that early, and you also need to think about it continually. 
I saw another post that was, but I forget who it was from. It was something along the lines of the web. We're doing right now what we did in the late 90s on the web, which is that we're spending six months, nine months, a year building things that we have no idea if there's a market for them. And we're putting them out on the app store and then they fail. And it's like, okay, that's not really surprising if you look historically at the lessons we've learned from web developers and from app developers. The what you should be doing is building something smaller, simpler, that finds your market. VCs call it product market fit. Ship faster, sooner, get that validation, get those beta testers, and then listen to your audience. And more importantly, metrics the hell out of your app and take a look at how people are using it or when you're losing people. You know, optimizing to be clear, your, do not uh, use your metrics as a way to invade your users' privacy. Yes, you that is true. be respectful and go with the respectful service. <laughs> you know, if, if you have, for instance, a login barrier to your app. You should really pay attention and understand how many people you're losing to that login barrier and start thinking, is there a way we can remove that? Is there a way we can make more people go through that? And I think a lot of developers start out of the gate and say, well, I'm just going to ship it and then I'm going to add metrics, you know, maybe in 1.5 and then maybe in 2.0 I'll do something new with the login. But login is done, so I'm checking it off the chart and I'm never thinking about it again. But the reality of what you look at is if you look at a a login system, you're probably losing 80% of your users they aren't even creating an account. And that's probably a metric that pretty much every system with an upfront login has. And, you know, with metrics like 2% a month out... Uh, that's even... And by the way, that's even if, you're, if, you're, if your login system is just go over and click a Facebook button. You lose yeah. that many users. Yeah. I mean... So marketing is about getting your app name and stuff out there, but it's also about finding your market. And that's the part, I think, that people miss when they go out and read market blogs, blogs about how to, make, you know, how to get yourself featured and how to get in good with Apple and how to get yourself on podcasts and this podcast notwithstanding because I'm sure everyone on it makes tons of money and everything mentioned here is doing well. But, uh, you know, say you're, you're featured on Engadget or, or Engadget even around anymore? I don't know. That is only a very tiny part of what marketing really is. And what marketing really is is going out there and finding your customers, finding who's going to do that word of mouth that gets you traction so that you're, you're growing instead of shrinking. And then from there, you build out your marketing presence. As, as far as traditional marketing, you know. But until you have a feature set that's compelling to people, until you know that feature set is compelling, any money you spend on ads is going to be wasted. Um, sure. Any sort of feature that you do for your 1.0 is going to be wasted if your 1.0 is targeting a, an audience that doesn't exist. This maybe maybe goes back in time a little, although you've kind of circled back around to it. But you talked earlier about uh, with AppViz, well, you said something positive about how your users were developers and they were maybe not so horrible as the typical app store reviewer. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious sure. to know if, if you guys still like that market because I think that's a pretty specific market, but you it, mean the, the developer market? Yeah. So making tools. For I'd developers. say I love the market. I mean, I get out and I meet these people every day and it's nothing like going to WWDC. I got a hug one year. I mention it every year, every time I'm on a podcast. Some guy walked up to me. He's like, I love your app and he hugged me. And you know what? That actually meant a lot to me as weird as it was, you know, and I understand where he's coming from because he's a developer, you know, and I understand his needs and he understands what I'm doing. And they, developers understand, you know, that problems are frustrating. They take time to fix, and they'll actually help you work through it and fix it. They're really good at getting you logs, but it's not a great market to sell. 
developers are very much, I will build it myself if it's going to be too expensive. And they're also in a situation where a lot of them are not making a ton of money. They can't afford to buy a lot of stuff. But even something that's $10 a month that doesn't seem like that much to you, but they're doing the math in their head over two years, it's 240 bucks, and they have to position that against something like Photoshop, right? <laughs> right, okay. You know? So no, I would not try to sell tools into that market unless you had VC or some sort of exit plan or some sort of tool that or you were sure. Or just a $20 tool, right? That didn't take, you know, at, the problem with AppViz is it, was, it pegged out all the factors. It was an enormously complicated tool that had to be expensive for a relatively small market. You know, if you're talking about something more like Photoshop or Xscope or, you know, Text Expander or some of the more kind of tools that, you know, Sublime I think text. you can make money there. You're never going to make the yacht money. You know, okay, off, yeah, I'll revise of, that. Of if that. you have something that isn't going to take a long, large amount of ongoing time, you can do the math based on the market size and figure out whether it's going to make you enough money if you get, you know, 10% of the market, which is, you know, I think we had 20 or 30% with AppViz and it still didn't quite make enough. And then, you know, obviously having free competitors like AppAny sucks. So, but yeah, I'd say I love the market from a perspective of dealing with them. From the perspective of uh is it a good market for you to target? Well, there are a lot other markets that are a lot bigger that have real problems that you can solve too, you know. And in developers they can solve their own problems. That's the thing about developers. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, I appreciate that perspective. I I see some there are developer apps that I think are successful and one that came to mind was Dash, the documentation viewer. That Yeah basically just does way better than Xcode's. Yeah, I didn't mean broken. to say you could not have a developer tool that's successful. It just needs to be something that doesn't require a ton of ongoing time and maintenance and costs. Yeah, so and I think... you got to keep in mind, it's a small market. You ran into, as we heard, a lot of trouble with AppViz. Moving that a little bit broader, I'm, I'm kind of curious about uh, sort of focusing on, on niche markets versus the whole market of iOS users or Mac users or whatever. There's a there, there's certainly the, the big hits are things like games that anybody can use or you know instagram is something that everybody no matter what can sort of get behind taking pictures but there are also these smaller smaller markets i I, i'm kind of coming at this personally because i have a mac app that's for ham radio operators which is obviously a very small market comparatively unfortunately we we beat you we had an app that was made for podcasters that did what AppViz did for podcasters. Oh, wow. Appviz. So I could tell you and where your rankings were globally, who was listening to you, that kind of thing. Our market was 10 people. <laughs> I That's think literally how many we sold. So our market was probably 100 people, but still. Yeah, it's but getting I, bigger, but yeah. But I, but I think there is this, it's easy, maybe easier to differentiate yourself if you're not competing oh, against every like, game so, on the store or whatever. If you have a target market and you know how to reach them, if you know how to market them, if you know how to get them to see what you're doing, and you can charge a real price for that market. Part of the issue with developers is there's going to be an open source tool that does what you do, and you can still sell something for them if you do it really well, but you know, you're know you going to only get so much in the market because the open source tool does 80% of the work. But if you're going to sell something like ham radio operators, and you can charge you know, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, or whatever it is, or some sort of ad-supported revenue... And you can get them to actually use it. I think that's a legitimate strategy. I think trying to get everybody to use your app is a fool's game, too. Everybody's trying to build the next social network. That's too crowded. Unless you have a really good niche and a really good idea to target it. I mean, if it's something you do, something you're passionate about, something you can understand, and that's what led me to do developer tools in the first place. It's like my own pain. I was solving my own problem with AppViz. The problem was that that didn't remain my problem because I wrote a Mac app, so the iPhone store problems weren't my problems, and I had trouble understanding, you know, so I had to rely more and more on people to tell me what the problems were, and that's, so you should definitely dog food your own app 
you should be doing your own thing. But I'd say, you know, you're probably better off doing that and targeting a series of niches where each one generates a steady revenue stream that's smaller than trying to make one giant dominant thing. Because, I mean, I heard like 5%, something like that, of the startups that get funded are successful. And that's after you get funded. Think about how many apply. You don't want to be in that market. If you're comfortable living, making a comfortable living, or doing some consulting on the side, do a bunch of small apps. That you don't have to. You know, I have seen a lot of customer data over the years, and the people who make money—I mean, besides the huge guys—are the ones that have 10 to 20 to 30 to 100 apps, and they make good money on that. They make a reasonable living. They can make, you know, low seven figures even some. And it's to be clear, that's not the app mills. These are people who have built useful products that yes, didn't require yes. you know mm-hmm. a huge amount of upfront investment but aren't the guys who are like auto packaging and just dumping stuff into the app store because yeah. that's not a I mean the only is, if you're going to write like a dictionary app or something that can be easily repurposed with the basic technology that can be a good market to be in but if you're going to write a bunch of crap you're not going to probably make money on it unless you have tens of thousands but if you're in the 10 to 20 app range I think is maybe a good target for niche markets and you can make good money there, I think. I also, yeah, our average iOS customer, I think, had something like uh, between 10 and 20 apps uh, when we went to services and we could actually collect that data. And the thing is, like, you get done with your app, what are you going to do next? Going to just sit on your laurels? No, you're going to write another app, right? And the thing that I think people miss is they put too many of their eggs into the one app basket. Like, write a bunch of little apps, find one that's successful, and then invest a year or two in making it really awesome. But don't invest all of your mortgage and your credit cards into building that one thing and getting it out there before you know that it's going to be successful. That's just, it's a fool's game, you know? And I think it's great that people are willing to take that risk, but there's a better strategy for doing that. I was. My first app was a really bad to-do manager that let you manage one to-do task at a time, you know? It's like, and I put it out there and like it was making, I don't know, $5 a day or something like that. Well, you know, if I'd kept down that route, eventually I would have had something, that, a few things that were making $100 a day and I would have been in a much better situation. You know, it doesn't take that much, but, you know, you have to kind of be in it for the long game. It's a lifetime career. You want to build the tools, you want to build the skills, get learn some marketing, you know, and don't just approach it like the one app that you left your company to build is going to like be this huge hit and you're going to retire in a year because that's unlikely to be true. It just is. And I mean, good luck to you if it is. I mean, if it is successful, hey, it's like rolling the dice. The thing is, you know, you want to play as many games as you can. If you can play 10, 20 hands, you're better off than just playing that one and gambling on that one hand. So. Yeah, there's an adage probably overused that venture capitalists invest, don't invest in in ideas, they invest in people and industries, and primarily industries. And I think as an indie, you have to look at your time and say, I'm kind of a venture capitalist in that I'm investing in this idea. I'm investing in this industry. But what you can't be so invested in the idea that you're building that you close your eyes to everything else happening in, in the market that you're targeting. Because oftentimes, you don't end up building the thing that you thought you were building in the beginning. And it's, it's kind of hubristic to say that this idea you had is going to be perfect for your market. Release Which something. Which I guess is counter Listen to, to the idea business. that you know you should still be passionate about what you're doing. You should still put your heart and soul into what you're doing. It's just don't assume that thing that you put your heart and soul into is going to pay off and let you retire on it. Assume that there's going to be more work down the road that you're going to have to do. You know, yeah, and that you're passionate. Developers are passionate about all kinds of things. Find a few more things. Do a few more things. Try a few more things. 
And Sorry if we seem pessimistic on the App Store, sort of as a whole. It's just, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not pessimistic. <laughs> like Apple, you know, it can sound like that. Apple's paid out what they say, fifteen billion dollars, and sure that pie's sliced disproportionately. But there are a lot of indie people who are making it or have a hybrid indie consulting career and are doing good. You know, I think we can focus too much on the negatives. But I think that a lot of the negatives are solvable, too. I think it's not an unsolved problem, partially through Apple. Apple needs to get on some of the things that will enable us to do. But people have been harping on that forever, you know, things like beta testing your apps and stuff like that. Or, uh, you know, free trials, that's what I was getting at. Upgrades. But, you know, there's a lot of things you can do as a developer to be successful. And one of the other things that I wanted to bring up is that, you know, the reason that those all those dumb games, uh, and they're not all dumb, some of them are pretty fun, but all the free-to-play games are successful is because they have a low point, low barrier to entry, get a lot of people in the door, take a percentage of them and monetize them. Now, I think a lot of them are aggressive and terrible at it, but, you know, if you do it well, if you're respectful, something like, uh, what was that Frogger-like game, Crossy Road, you know, that sells stuff that people want to buy, you can do good at that. And the other thing is once you have a customer base, you have a customer base. It's way easier to sell something to someone who's already given you money. I think that's something that people don't understand because I don't see it happening a lot. You should have some sort of in-app purchase and maybe a zero cost on your thing and some sort of in-app purchase or maybe a cost and some sort of in-app purchase. Some people are going to want to give you more money. Give them a way to do that. you know. And it, don't make them do it. Don't put up a dumb artificial barrier. Give them the opportunity to pay you for your work. And they will because there are a lot of people out there who don't suck. <laughs> you know, who care about, you know, what you're doing, who are passionate about whatever your app is. Give them a way to help you out. I actually had people write me an app is asking me to charge them more money, which was really weird and extremely rare, and I didn't understand it, but it's the truth. There are people out there who have more money. You're solving a problem for them. You know, they want to give back to you, They want, or they want more of your work. So, you know, cross-app promotions so you can sell them other stuff, in-app stuff that really matters that actually provides functionality or that, you know, helps them express themselves like a different outfit for a little character. You know, some, but not like these artificial dumb pay-to-play gateway crap where you have to, you know, pay every 10 minutes. Don't do that. Please don't do that. There are enough of that in the market. But that doesn't mean that the whole idea of in-app purchases is bad. Target makes all of its money on the people who come back every week and buy their groceries there. I guarantee it. I think one of the things the App Store, the iOS App Store in particular, makes a little bit hard is that it's it's harder to sort of get this. You don't know who your customers are, right? At least, at least unless you go out of your way to try. I haven't looked at the new analytics. Is it helping break any of that down, or is it just? Well, I I, I mean specifically, like you can't email somebody, you know. Well, say, yeah, hey, there's this huge barrier. So if someone leaves a review like a on your on your app, you can generally find that person. But yeah. <laughs> Well, if, yeah, if they if they leave a review, but it it actually brought up another question I wanted to ask you guys because I know I'm more of a Mac developer than I am an iOS developer, and I think Mike is much the same way, or at least right now he's working on a Mac app. Yep. And there's this question still on the Mac about selling outside the App Store versus in inside the App Store. I don't know if you sold AppViz on the App Store. I know my copy of not. it is. They would not let us. Okay. Yeah, my, I know my copy of it is not from the App Store because I actually just fired it up and. And to be clear, they would not let us because their API to iTunes and whatever is considered a private API. Oh right. Straight okay. Fun. We yes. didn't even try. It, I mean, yeah, they let it let us into the air. I think we had a an app that in the iPhone store. I don't know. I think it made. Yeah, we had it for iOS. Yeah, we had apps for iOS. I didn't. We really, really I never know if it. anything ever made it out of beta or not, <laughs> because when I use it, it's always in beta, right? So yeah, they let us in that talking to our own server, which then talked. Well, well so leaving aside the question of apps that just 
can't be on the App Store because they don't follow the rules that Apple has. What do you think about selling Mac apps I outside think the store? That right now you should try to be in the store, but if you can't because of the sandboxing restrictions, you should file a bug with Apple and then sell outside the store. That's just the way it is. I think there's enough flexibility, enough knowledge in the Mac community for how to get those apps. And I think that eventually down the road, if you don't have sandbox problems now, you're probably going to run into them. It's pretty terrible. I mean, I just all, being on the developer side, all I hear is complaints about it, and I hear that the sales are not great. So I'd say, you know, put a stick in the sand, try to be there if you can. You'll probably get some sales, but don't break your back with doing it, you know. And, you know, it'll get better, I'm sure. It's a great idea. It's great to have one place to update and everything. And that's nice for your customers. So do that for your customers if you can. But yeah, as a customer experience, I love the Mac App Store. As a mm-hmm. developer experience, you know, if your app is in the Mac App Store, I will buy it in the Mac App Store versus from your website, uh, just yes. because it's so much more convenient for me. But on the same side, I think the fact that we're having this discussion, how many years after the, how long has the Mac App Store been around? Four years? Three years? Yeah, four, going um, five, four and a half, something like that. Apple hasn't made it an imperative to buy from the Mac App Store for your average customer. And I think that that is a huge problem. I mean, they are, you know, in businessy terms that I get yelled at for using by my partners. You know, they aren't demonstrating a lot of traction. We're businessing all over the conversation. Yeah, I'm going to (laughs) business over here. So they aren't demonstrating a lot of user growth inside the Mac App Store versus outside the Mac App Store. And it's been five years. Like, if it's going to go somewhere, it's not going to be because it just magically happens. Apple's going to have to make some significant changes. So for now, you know, I agree with Dylan. It's approach it with caution. Do it if you can. And if it's a huge pain in the ass, don't do it. Uh, you, right, know, you know, the, hire us to do the Mac App Store version. Plug, plug. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm uh, pay some, pay someone else to be terrible. <laughs> to do, to go to the pain and bang their head on in the sandboxing crap. I understand the safety model. And the other great thing about it, and the reason you pretty much want to be on the App Store if you can, is because of the user credit cards. And that's not to say from the mercenary standpoint is credit cards are good and people don't like to put them in, but it's also much safer for you not to handle that data. I mean, if anybody stored any credit card data, you get a payment processor and your Mac to do your shopping experience on your website and have them store it. But still, Apple has the cards and they're a lot more secure there than they're going to be with random payment processor X. Except FastSpring, we have to plug because they're awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, you just one of my picks now is going to be FastSpring. FastSpring is uh, FastSpring was did. a payment provider for AppViz, and they were awesome the whole time. They were great. Um, okay. Any company that's still scrappy enough where you can get the people who own it on the phone and talk about your problem uh, is definitely where you want in a payment provider. We originally used PayPal, and they were just oh my God, cold and PayPal. dead. And yeah, do not use PayPal if you're an indie software. Did you know game. if you have a business account with Pay or if you have an account with PayPal that they withhold some percentage on a rolling basis of your money and don't give it to you? They do that <laughs> if you accept credit cards. Yeah, and it's like 10 or 15%. But yeah, it's other, really obnoxious. And not only that, but they denied, they put us to like fraud because we sold software, which they didn't understand, and they denied us access to new APIs. So I had to one night write, rewrite the APIs twice. I called them. They said, they gave me verbal, I had written the API to talk to them. I needed new features, so I went to write a new version of the API against their pro API. I called them, and they said, yeah, we're, we're, it's in provisional approval. I wrote that. The next day, when we were going live, they called me and said, nope, we're not going to give you approval. And they, they shut off our API, and we couldn't roll back to the old one. And I had to rewrite it again because they were sunsetting. I forget the exact reason. So I had to write three versions in 24 hours. And it's just the whole, yeah, 
I hate PayPal. I could go on forever about how I hate them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I used PayPal for payment processing for my Mac app for quite a while and then switched FastSpring. And it Plus, certainly... it's super slow. The yeah. site sucked. Right, it was, it was bad. It's just add-in. It's just yep. Square is and awesome. FastSpring is relatively app. cheap on the other side. Like yep. Even compared to PayPal, FastSpring is cheap. You make more of your money. Right, and that's when you're small. That's a big deal. Well, it looks like their rates are higher, but because they don't withhold that money from you, it ends up being a better deal. Plus, and it's just such a better mm-hmm. experience, even for it's more money. So be much worth better. It. <laughs> I'm partial well, also, to Stripe you'll, you'll myself. Find customers, but... Stripe, customers hate to PayPal too. A lot of the time. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. yeah well. well, when they're not randomly seizing accounts for charities, you know. Okay, I gotta let that go. That was like ten years ago, wasn't it? No, they, I, they still do that kind of stuff. Definitely heard recently that kind of thing. All right, well, yeah. we're kind of getting to the point where I know somebody has to take off. So let's go ahead sure. and get to the picks. Let's have Andrew start off with picks. Okay, I started out thinking I don't have any picks today, and now I've got too many picks to pick from. But I'm going to pick, well, first, relevant to this discussion we've just had, I'm going to pick uh, Fast Spring, but I'm also going to pick this this new thing that uh, I think it's Real Mac has done in partnership with Fast Spring called DevMate. And they're just, if you're going to sell a Mac app outside the App Store, one of the things that's not so great about that compared to the App Store is that you've got to come up with a licensing scheme and you have to, you know, build that into your app and you've got to do payment processing on your website. And um, it's not really that fun. And it's something that if you've never done before, it takes a while to figure out how you're going to do that. And anyway, they've uh, put together this service slash SDK called DevMate that does a lot of that for you and has analytics and crash reporting and all of that kind of thing. So I haven't used it yet, but it, it looks really cool. And that sounds phenomenal. I'll have to check that out after. And then um, secondly, I'm going to pick the API diffs. So as we record, WWDC is, is still going on. By the time the episode comes out, it will be over. But um, I, my favorite way to learn about new stuff that maybe you know I wouldn't hear about otherwise is just to read the API diffs. It sounds kind of boring and nerdy, and I guess it is. But um, you'll find little tidbits that aren't mentioned in a session or even if they are mentioned you didn't see that session or something like um, I was reading through them yesterday and I found a a new method on NS string which I think may be a wrapper for some existing core foundation but anyway it can convert between romanized Japanese and hiragana and katakana which is just cool and I would not have found that otherwise so read the API diffs Um, they're a little hard to go through this year because there's a lot of just minor changes that are audited just where they're auditing APIs for Swift but uh Still good stuff in there. And then lastly, I'm going to pick GOG.com. I think it's goodoldgames.com, and this is just a site that sells old games. They've got a lot of old DOS games, and a lot of them... Also even The, the Witcher old... 3. Oh, yeah? Yep. yep. A lot King's of the old... Quests, and they've got the old old like the old Sierra stuff on there. Oh, it's right, 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 definitely. And a lot, even uh, they've, they're using... Um, they're using DOSBox slash, uh, there's actually an app called Boxer, um, a Mac app that they partnered with the developer on. So a lot of these DOS games, you can download them from GOG.com, and they're they're a Mac app, so you can run them on your Mac even though it's a DOS game. And there's just a lot of cool, great old games, and they're not very expensive either. Yeah, it's Those like $5 picks. for all the King's Quests or something. When I looked at it, it was just some crazy little amount. I'm thinking, comment. Those are all that was most of my childhood. Those are all non-DRM too, and it's yeah, just, yeah, right. And right. they'll patch the games. Some of them they've updated themselves, and they're a big company. CD Projekt Red. They just released The Witcher Three. That's why it's there. But it is an awesome service. I'm right there with you on that pick. <laughs> yep, I love it. So those are my picks. All right, Mike, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, uh, two. First, uh, I'll go for Apple's WWDC sample code, which um, 
It's a pretty slick site this year, and in particular, I really like their Swift standard library sample code. It's actually a playground that takes advantage of their uh, multiple pages support and discusses a lot of stuff with nice examples and, and uh, shows you not only how to use a lot of the new stuff, but also how to kind of build nice playgrounds. And then the second one, which I promise is vaguely relevant, even though it doesn't sound like it, but bear with me. Uh, it's witsradio.org. It's a public radio show. And the reason I bring it up is because one of their bits that they do occasionally is they do uh, readings by actors of one-star Amazon reviews of classic literature, which sounded like the kind of thing you get with certain bad app reviews. And uh, I think a live reading of bad app reviews on, on good apps would be a fun little segment for somebody to do also. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds good. Oh man, that'd be that'd be a great like ten minute podcast weekly. I'd I'd subscribe to that. Not that we know anyone who does podcasts. Yeah, I I wish I did. All right, I've got a couple of picks. Um, I've kind of been picking this on all my shows, and it's more of a short rant than a pick. But we're kind of, the political situation in the United States is kind of heating up as people are um, stepping up and you know announcing their candidacy to be president. And I just want to get people to go out and talk to people who they don't necessarily agree with. This applies not only to politics, but, um, you know, religion to different ways of coding things, different language preferences, uh, library preferences, uh, coding practices, you know. But in the grand scheme of things, I find that most people I talk to when I don't agree with people, uh, we, we do have some common ground. I mean, there are certain things that we both want. There are certain areas w that we both agree on. And... In most cases, I won't say all cases because it's not true, but most cases I find that at some level there's a value or a principle that I believe that they don't or they believe that I don't. And if you kind of build your case from there, you can see how a reasonable person would get to where they are. And in a lot of cases, they find the same thing with me. And so instead of people yelling at each other over this stuff, I think if we sat down and talked about it, you know, I think we can then start to have conversations about the things that are really important, both in professionally and in life. And, uh, you know, just come to understand what we do agree on and what we want. So anyway, it's kind of a, a short little speech. But anyway, I, I think it's really important for people to expand their horizons that way. It's a healthy thing to do. And you'll find that uh, in a lot of cases, you think about things differently after you have those conversations. So. So yeah, that's the one pick. I also want to remind people about Ruby Remote Conf, if you're interested in Ruby. And yeah, I think that's all I've got. So uh, Dylan, do you have some picks for us? I do. I chose a couple th things that I tend to use. Uh, first would be World Time Buddy, in no hyphen. It's worldtimebuddy.com. They also have an app. Uh, I have to mention it because of just it's similar to something that was recommended on the meeting email about um, meet at this time. But it shows you three a timeline. You can add different timelines for the different time zones, and you can line up. You select one of the times. It selects the others in the time zone. So you can take a list of any time zones in the world. I think you have to pay for unlimited. I think up to five is free. And on their website, you can see what a time relates to, which since I did a lot of time zone stuff, it actually, because you can see them all in one line, and it doesn't just spit out the answer, what time is this in a different thing. It gives you a, an actual feeling for how the times line up, which is very useful if you're doing anything with date time or trying to figure out when a meeting is. So worldtimebuddy.com, I'm a huge fan. They do have an ad. Its site you know, could use some cleaning up, but it does what it does really well. 
The second recommendation I have is something called complice.co, C-O-M-P-L-I-C-E dot C-O. And that is a daily to-do manager that's based on taking your list of goals and breaking it up into a very simple every day you go in and you type in, this is what I'm going to do today, and this is the goals that it's related to. One, two, three, four, five. Makes it really simple to add. It's not heavy. It doesn't have tags, categorization, search, any of that stuff. It's just what I'm going to do today. And then it lets you focus. It's got a built-in Pomodoro timer if you're into doing 20-minute sprints. So Pomodoro is a technique where you work for 30 minutes, you take a break for 10 minutes. I find I more like an hour works better for me. And it helps you focus on just the things that you're going to do, just the important stuff you're going to do today. And it uses color coding to tie those back to your your bigger goals, your 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 life goals, your personal goals. So it helps you balance those things. And then it takes the results of that. Every day you type in, did I do enough on this thing? It's really simple. It's fast to use. It's faster than I'm making it sound. Um, you can do it over email and so every day you reset your goals. And I find that helps focus my days. Not everybody works that way. I also use OmniFocus to keep track of all the long-running stuff. But Compass helps you purpose your day. And it's really great for that. It really helps you you know, do one thing. And you'll see it. And it's just like, this is just a simple idea. But while using it, I got so much more done. And it also tracks what you do over time. So you can see, hey, over the last month, I haven't contributed enough to my fitness goal, for example. Um, so I really like that. That's a new... And it's run by one guy. And if you do a chat you can chat with him on the sidebar and he's very responsive and it's written in Node.js and it's 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 pretty well done so that and uh then transmit from panic i just have to put in a plug here it's another app i use almost every day uh just just a beautiful ftp if you need to transfer files to anywhere to i think it supports s3 and a bunch of other stuff uh on a repeated basis it will get your files there and it's a, it's a great experience. And if you need to transfer stuff as, us, as often as I am, if you're at the command line with SCP, you should get this tool instead. So transmit. I'm sure they don't really need the help. Panic's a pretty big, um, <laughs> pretty, I'm sure everybody's heard of panic. So um, everybody but, loves panic, but man, it is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, everybody loves it and they're good guys. You can follow them on Twitter, but man, I use that every day. So those are my three picks. All right. Dustin, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, okay, so the first one I have to, is Xscope. I have to have the copy that it's from Micon Factory, and I don't get a penny every time we, we, we sell one. But it would have been my pick before I was at Icon Factory, and I felt like I had to say it. So it was related to the design implementation. So if you guys are ever familiar with trying to find something that's a couple pixels off or trying to see what's happening with the drop shadow or measure some screen or some screenshot, Xscope is the Swiss army knife for UI developers, and it really is all the tools that you need to make a design a reality, uh, other than, of course, your IDE. I'm so in love with Xscope. It's one of my favorite apps ever that opening it for the first time really felt like Christmas Day for me. Like it's, it, I have that because it solves a series of problems that otherwise are incredibly hard problems, hard measurement problems to solve. If you're a iOS developer and you're doing UI, or if you're a web developer, there's great tools for responsive design, and it just really is an indispensable Swiss Army knife that you're going to want in your pocket. It's it's very affordable and it's just wonderful. Uh, you just, I could not do UI development the way I do it without Xcope, or it would take me half again as long. It's just wonderful. Uh, and my other one is Slack. Slack, had, we're a distributed team. There's some people here in Minnesota, but we work from home a lot. And Slack is, I'm sure people have 
mentioned it before on this podcast, but it is has replaced the water cooler for us. It has replaced the management side of things um, almost completely. Uh, it, we, it is integrated with everything that you could possibly think about using. We integrate it with Trello. We integrate it with Git. We create channels for different projects, for communicating with customers, for random channels where people can post pictures of gifts and kittens and kind of get that social experience that we were missing working at home in isolation. You know, where you used to get up, go to the coffee pot and talk to your fellow developers. Slack really is the ultimate chat replacement for, for that experience. And it's and I've a used really, really chat, good job. Slack is way better. <laughs> Yeah, it is It is just indispensable for anyone who is on a team that needs to communicate. It's just buy it, pay for it. It's wonderful, uh, and you will not regret it. Those are my two picks. I love Slack. All right. Well, thanks for coming, guys. It was it was fun to chat. Lots of good stuff in here. Talking. Thanks for having us meander all Sorry over the, we, the podcast. Yeah, we meander around. We take up all the space. That's what we do. No, it was all good. All right, we'll yeah, wrap up the show. If you guys are ever in Minnesota, come down and have coffee with us. We'll uh, we'll do the same thing, only in person. It'll be and amazing. And in stereo. You'll have each of one of us on each side of you talking at the same time. <laughs> if I'm ever in Minnesota, I've never been there. Oh, you should come up. It's great here right now. It's like Come for the mall, and... stay for the uh mall. We have a big mall <laughs> here. So come see that and then come see us Well, we, we... We have a panelist. He's at WWDC right now. I think maybe you guys know him, James. James, yeah. Oh, yeah, James. We know James pretty well. He's so a cool guy. Someday we'll have to have an iFreaks get together. There we go. All, All right. Well, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreaksShow.com slash forum. 